On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Happy Christmas. Before I jump into the sermon, let me just say a service like this would not happen without many, many volunteers, some of whom have been here since very early this morning. Can we give a really warm round of applause? You know, it can sound perfunctory, but let me just say, if you were part of the serving team in any way, if you serve at all here at RCL, a huge thank you. We're a church family, and as a family, we would not be what we are without those who serve and give in so many ways, so thank you. Now, John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. My guess is that if you've ever been to church before at a Christmas service, you've probably never heard this passage read for a Christmas service. Normally, we think about the nativity scene or something about Jesus' deity and his incarnation. But this morning, I've decided to call our attention to this story, which is Jesus' very first miracle. He's at a wedding, and he turns water into wine. And the reason why I'm calling your attention to this story today is actually there in verse 11. In verse 11, the author John says, This was the first of the signs. John's telling us that this story, though it's beautiful, it's a deeply beautiful human story, is more than a story. It's a sign. If you were navigating the underground, trying to go somewhere that you've never been before, chances are you would use signs. You would look on a map. You might use City Mapper. But you know that if you're there trying to figure out which direction do I take on the train and you look at a sign you know that that sign is not your destination. It's meant to point you beyond. It's meant to show you something greater, your ultimate goal. And John says, this story, this is a sign. And so we're meant to look at the story and to see where it points us, to see what it's ultimately looking towards. And in some ways, this story is a perfect summary of Christmas because it tells us what Jesus came into the world to give, 
or to bring. And so this morning, just relatively briefly, I want to meditate with you. I want to look at this passage and say it's a sign. What's it a sign of? It's a sign of what you need. It's a sign of what Jesus came to give. And it's a sign of how he would give it. So what you need, what Jesus gives, and how he gave it. Let's take a look. First, what is this passage a sign of what you need? Now, it's a wedding, and weddings in the first century, to the relief of any of you who are planning a wedding right now, weddings in the first century were a whole week long. And ordinarily, the entire town was invited. I mean, you thought planning a wedding was hard today. That would be tricky. And we're told pretty early on in this passage that there was a crisis. In verse 3, Mary's, uh, uh, Jesus' mother Mary comes to him and says, they have no more wine. Now, that would be disappointing, right? If you're at a party, if you're at a wedding and they run out of something, that would be disappointing. But in the first century, it wasn't just disappointing. This was utterly humiliating. You see, it was the job of the groom to make sure that there would be enough wine for the wedding festivities. And if you were at a wedding and stuff ran out, you wouldn't just say, oh, bummer. You'd say, that family failed. The groom failed. It would be utterly humiliating for this couple, for this groom, starting off his married life having not planned properly having run out of something. And so Mary comes to Jesus and it's a state of chaos. It's a crisis. And she says, they have no more wine. And that's the first way this story is a sign. That in your life, sooner or later, the wine always runs out. You see, wine in the Bible is always a symbol of joy. Wine is a symbol of joy. In Psalm 104 and verse 15, we read that God has given wine to people to gladden the heart of humanity. Not wine to be drunk in excess, but wine is a symbol of relationship, of peace, of celebration, of community in which you love and are loved. Wine is a symbol of joy. The rabbis used to say, maybe some still do, without wine there can be no joy. It's a symbol of people being together and celebrating love and life. Wine is a symbol of joy. It's that deep sense of contentment and gladness and happiness. And you know, all of us in this room, everyone in our city, what you want and what you look for more than anything else is joy, a kind of deep happiness of soul. Sigmund Freud, who wasn't thinking or speaking from a Christian perspective, but who knew a lot about people. He said, look, in all my study, and all my research, I've looked at what motivates human beings. And he said, the thing that I found that motivates them most of all, the thing that they desire out of life and wish to achieve, the answer can hardly be in doubt. It's to be happy and to remain happy forever. And so when Mary comes to Jesus and says they have no more wine what she's saying is in effect the joy is about to run out and for all of us this passage is a sign of what we desperately need wine that doesn't give out joy that lasts a joy that is unconquerable a joy that is secure and you know what else is interesting if you look at verse three I mean I've already told you this is a crisis is a massive crisis for this family And yet when Mary comes to Jesus, the passage just simply says when they ran out of wine. 
not, oh my gosh, but can you believe it? It's just almost like it was bound to happen because it is bound to happen. You see, you are looking for joy. Some of you are looking for joy and peace in another person or a person that you hope will come into your life. Some of you are looking for it at your job. Even if your job is really hard and demanding, your sense of worth and satisfaction is connected to how successful you are. Others get a sense of joy out of things being peaceful, no conflict. Some get joy or peace from a sense of religiosity. I obey God, I'm moral, I keep the rules. We could go down the list. People in our city are yearning for joy. Many of you came to London because you thought this was going to be the place where you would find your wine. This would be the place where you'd meet the right people, you'd get the right job, you'd climb the ladder, you'd make people proud of you, you'd show that you belong, and finally you'd feel at peace. And you know what happened to many of you? You met the right people, you got the right jobs, you're climbing the ladder, and you know what? The wine is running out. You still don't feel joyful. You still don't feel peaceful. Why? (laughs) It's not because relationships are bad. They're really good. God gave us them. We need them. It's not because jobs are not satisfying. They're meant to be. God made us to work. It's not because it's wrong to look for peace and community. We should need those things. But our problem is that we're looking for infinite joy and finite things. And they can't satisfy C.S. Lewis, writing about this, said, you know, when you look to another person or when you look to a job or when you look to an experience to give you the kind of deep joy and beauty that would ultimately heal your soul, Lewis said, you'll always be betrayed. And he goes on to say, these things in our lives, they're good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols And they crush the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune that we've not yet heard. News from a country that we've not yet visited. All the good things in life, all the things that we're looking to and longing for, they're good. But they're not big enough to satisfy that ache and that longing in your heart. And that's because Augustine was right. Augustine, writing many years ago, said, God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Only God can give you can be the kind of joy that doesn't run out, a kind of deep, unconquerable peace. We'll get to that in just a minute. But this is the first way this story is a sign. And this, friends, is why we need Christmas. It's not an accident when the angels came to the shepherds and said, we've got good news of great joy. For all people, today a Savior has been born. Now, before we move to point two, let me just say, virtually all the religions of the world agree that sooner or later the wine runs out. That is, joy fades. Things aren't satisfying. All religions more or less agree with that. But here's where Christianity is different. Here's where Christianity is unique. Most religions in our world say, yes, the joy is going to run out. So... Here's what you have to do in order to find more peace and joy. And it gives you a set of things to believe or a set of things to do if you're going to have joy. 
And Christianity is unique because Christianity says, yeah, the joy is going to run out, wine's going to give way, but the ultimate wine giver has come. The bringer of joy has come into our world. That's what Christmas celebrates. One author writing about that says, to be a Christian is to have the deep privilege of living in contact with the winery, <laughs> the bringer of joy. So let's now move to point two of our sermon. If that's what we need, if that's what you're looking for, joy that doesn't run out, then here's the question, what does Jesus give? And the answer is deep, lasting joy that's of a superior quality than anything this world can give. Come back with me to the story. Verse three, Mary says to Jesus, they have no more wine, crisis. And in verse four, look at what Jesus says. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now we're gonna come back to that in a minute, but Jesus must have said that to Mary with a twinkle in his eye because then she turns to the servants, the people who were helping at the wedding, and she says, whatever he tells you, do it. Now, we don't know why Mary thought this problem should be brought to Jesus, probably because by that point in her life, she realized if you have a problem, it's a good idea to talk to Jesus. And so she comes and says, here's the problem. And Jesus says, effectively, how is that my problem? But then you know what he does? <laughs> he does the miracle. And we're not gonna go into too much detail, but he says to the servants, fill these gigantic pots of water, and they do that. And then he says, take some of the water that was in these big pots, bring it to the master of the ceremony. The guy has a sip and says, the best. And so what Jesus does for his first miracle, this is his first miracle, is he saves a party from going bad. He turns water into wine and he spares this couple, this bride and groom starting their married life. He spares them from great humiliation. Now, I have to confess to you, it's mind boggling to me, or at least it was, that of all the things that Jesus could have done to kick off his ministry, he does a semi-public miracle to turn water into wine so that people can keep having a good time at a party. I mean, Jesus is going to do some amazing stuff during his ministry. He's going to walk on water. That's cool. He's going to raise people back to life. He's going to feed hungry people. He's going to open the eyes of the blind. I mean, all that stuff is, you know, that's how you start, I would think. And yet Jesus, when he kicks off his ministry, at the very beginning, what he does is he turns water into wine so that the party can go on and people can keep enjoying each other and celebrating love and life. Why is that? If you look again at verse 11, the author John says this story, we already said it's a sign, but John says it's the first sign. Now, chronologically, that's true. It was the first miracle in Jesus' ministry. But that word first it, it's arche in Greek. It means archetype. John is saying, <laughs> this story is the archetype sign. This is the pattern sign. This encounter of Jesus at the wedding, if you understand what he's doing here, you get a picture of everything that he's about. And friends, think with me what good news this is. Some people think that following Jesus you know, Jesus is a killjoy. All these rules and requirements, you know, you got to obey, you got to do all this stuff. 
He's just sapping the life, the fun out of life. And do you realize if you think that, how far off you are from reality? That Jesus' first miracle and the miracle that gave us a picture into everything that he was about was saying, I have come so that people can experience love and being loved forever. And so that we could experience ultimate festival joy. And you say, well, how does that square with the fact that life is hard? I mean, some of you this morning, you come into this place, and let's be honest, we all know Christmas should be great, but for some of us, Christmas is really hard. Relationships have been broken. You're deeply sad. Maybe work's not going the way you hoped. Maybe you're struggling with something personally and you're embarrassed and humiliated by. And for some of you, even the act of following Jesus is what's really hard. It's hard to obey God. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to do things that sometimes feel like a denial of self. So you say, how does this square? Listen, friends. If Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, wine is a symbol of joy, then here's what this must mean. That joy is the ultimate goal. And sorrow and hardship can only be means to an end. But joy is gonna be the final word for the people of God. Deep festival joy, that's where you're headed. And make no mistake, the book of Revelation, which describes the end, the future for God's people, it ends with a party. <laughs> you know, when the Bible describes heaven, I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of heaven. Some of you maybe grew up with images of white clouds and people playing harps forever, kind of an eternal worship service. I mean, that would be fine, maybe. But, you know, doesn't sound all that compelling. But when the Bible describes the coming kingdom of God, the future, it says we're going to be in a city and there's going to be a banquet. And Isaiah describing that banquet puts it like this. He says, on that day, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On that day, he will destroy the gloom that hangs over all people. And he will swallow up death forever. Do you hear what Isaiah is saying? <laughs> Why did Jesus come into the world? Yes, we experience sorrow. Yes, our hearts break. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, there's moments of self-denial. All of that is true. But those things are not the end. The end is the kingdom. The end is a festival. The end is a banquet in which you are loved and show love forever. And darkness and death and decay are gone. And you finally feel, you would say, this is my home. This is where I belong. That's what's coming. And on the first miracle, Jesus says, that's what I'm about. That's where we're headed. That's what I've come into the world to bring. Festival joy, love, and being loved forever. That's what the Christian message is ultimately for. That's where it's pointing us. So here's the next question. Well, how does Jesus give it? You say, I want that. I need that. I want to know that. How does Jesus bring that? How does Jesus give that to a person today? Well, come back with me to his encounter with Mary. So interesting. Mary, again, crisis moment. They have no more wine. 
And Jesus says, woman, which you think that's disrespectful. It's kind of like ma'am. It's a little distant, but it's still respectful. He says, ma'am, why are you telling me? My hour has not yet come. Now that's cryptic. That's enigmatic. What's Jesus talking about? It's brilliant. Remember, it was the groom's responsibility to prepare wine for the wedding. And this groom, in our story, he failed. At some level, he dropped the ball. And when Mary comes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine, Jesus is effectively saying, how is that my problem? It's not my wedding yet. You see, what Jesus is doing is something maybe you've done if you've ever attended a wedding. Have you ever gone to a wedding and while there thought about your own wedding? Maybe a wedding that you hope to have in the future or maybe a wedding that you had in the past. You're there attending and you're thinking, you're daydreaming, you're thinking about your own wedding. Well, that's what Jesus is doing right here. And when Mary says they're out of wine, Jesus says, it's not yet my time to prepare the wine for my bride. That's going to come later. You say, Bijan, how do you know that? How do you? Because look, verse four, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And the word hour in the gospel of John, that's a very significant word. Every single time it's used, it refers to Jesus's death on the cross. And so when Jesus is with his disciples on the night before his death, and he takes a cup of wine, and he holds it up and he says, this cup, drink it all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant. On that very same night, Jesus says, my hour has come. And he goes to the cross. Because you see, that cup, what would it cost Jesus to provide the ultimate wine, the ultimate joy, that deep sense of peace and contentment and security for you, for his bride? Well, the only way he could provide it was through his death on the cross, in which Jesus, as our ultimate groom, he went and died in your place. He went and died as your substitute. For all the ways life has broken your heart, Jesus died for that. For all the ways that you look to the wrong things to give you a sense of identity and joy and purpose, Jesus died for that. And Jesus died to defeat death and sin and evil so that we could know that our future is festival joy. And on that day at that wedding, Jesus looks at Mary and says, it's not my time to die yet. Yeah, I'll do this miracle. I'll save this couple, sure. But the ultimate banquet, the ultimate wine, that comes later when I die for my people at my hour. How can you have this kind of joy in your life? How can you know this future can be your future, a future of festival joy? You have to look to, rest in, and trust Jesus as your ultimate groom. Jesus is the one who lived for you and died for you. And if you see that, when you see that, some of that future joy starts breaking into your present. And you experience real, even if not perfectly filling, real glimpses of infinite joy that will one day be yours completely and totally when you're with God in his kingdom. And what we can experience now is that breaking into the present. Let me just show you two ways how. 
before we wrap up. The first is this. If you know what Jesus has done for you on the cross, it'll mean that you're accepted. You'll know that you're accepted. This is fascinating. (laughs) Remember I said, the groom at this wedding was meant to provide enough wine for the party and he didn't. So in verse nine and 10, the master of the banquet, this is the MC, this is the guy who's in charge of the wedding, basically. He calls the groom over and the groom must be thinking, oh, I can't believe it. I mean, I had one job and I failed. And now I'm gonna be publicly humiliated. The master of the banquet's gonna embarrass me. My wife's gonna be disappointed. You know, ah. And he goes over to the master of the banquet. And what's he expecting? He's expecting judgment. He's expecting condemnation. And yet when he stands before the master of the banquet, he gets the credit for what Jesus had done. And friends, that's the gospel. When you stand before the master of the universe, if you're a Christian, you get the credit for what Jesus has done. You see, the gospel is not God treats you as you deserve. The gospel is God treats you as Jesus deserves. And on this day, this groom was spared humiliation and he was praised because he was seen through the accomplishment of Jesus. And if you know that, if you begin to believe that, you feel accepted. That guilt and that shame that you carry from ways that you've messed up and fallen short, you realize it's covered by Jesus. He paid for it. And you start to feel yourself to be a person who knows I'm accepted, I'm loved, and I'm safe. But here's the second thing, the last thing that I want to say for our sermon. Invite Jesus in. Can you imagine how happy this couple was that Jesus came to their wedding? Best guest ever. Best wedding present ever. I don't know what you're carrying today. I don't know what's breaking your heart. I don't know where you feel like you're out of resources. You don't know what to do. I don't know how you're bearing humiliation and shame. But invite Jesus in. Because everything gets better when he's present. Not always immediately, but ultimately. Invite him into your job. Invite him into your relationship. Invite him into your desire for a relationship. Invite him into your friendships. Invite him into your fears about the future. Invite him into that difficult conversation you need to have with someone. Invite him into that broken family where your parents who always seem disappointed or your kids who you're not sure if they're ever gonna figure it out. Invite him in. Because when Jesus comes in, what we can always say is, you've saved the best till last. The best is yet to come. So this Christmas season, whatever you're carrying, invite Jesus in and watch him work wonders. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for meeting us today in this passage. Thank you for speaking to us the powerful truth of the gospel. And now as we come to a time of reflection, we ask that you would help us to invite Jesus in. Maybe for some of us, that's for the first time ever. Maybe this is pretty new to us. For others, maybe we felt like we've walked with Jesus for a long time, but, but God, we need him deeper. We need him, we need a greater experience. So today, help us all to not miss the moment, but give us faith and trust and courage to invite Jesus in. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.